Okay, church, if you could open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I didn't bring my book in here, and I hate that because I really wish I could read this for you, but I'll just summarize. There's a book that William Lane Craig wrote. If you don't know who that is, he is a Christian apologist. Uh, he's, he's really more uh, of a philosopher. He's an apologist, but he's more on the philosophy side of things. A lot of times we think of an apologist, a defender of the faith, as maybe specializing in science, like a scientist. Uh, but he's a philosopher, and he knows his science as well. But that's kind of his specialty. Well, he wrote this book on guard. And there's another book called Reasonable Faith that I think is a more robust defense of the Christian faith. On guard is more written um, for the average person to be able to read easily and understand and comprehend. Well, in his section on the problem of evil and suffering in the world, he gives this story of a lady named Mabel. She was at a nursing home, and one of Dr. Craig's... Uh, um, partners that he worked with, one of his colleagues, uh, would visit the nursing home and came across this lady, Mabel, and I wish I could read it for you and describe it. If you want the book, come by my office and I'll let you borrow it sometime. But he describes her as she had had a stroke or something at one point, so half of her face was kind of drooping down. She would drool. Cancer had eaten the other side of her face. She had these dis discolored uh, parts of her face. Her eyes were white. She was blind. She had a giant hearing aid on. She was nearly deaf, and she just looked in really bad shape. And so this individual went up to uh, spend some time with her and, and said, I don't even know if she's going to be responsive, but he came and he gave her a flower, and he said, hey, Miss Mabel, I'm just here to visit you. I have this flower for you. And she said, well, if it's okay with you, I'd like to give it to somebody else, you know, I really can't see it. And so he said, okay, so pushed her down in her wheelchair, and they found someone she could give it to, and he said that she held the flower out to this person and said, here you go, this is from Jesus, and gave the person the flower. So over the coming weeks, they struck up a good relationship, and he went back regularly to talk, and he records in the book that at first, um, this man didn't really know what to expect, but he found that he was learning a lot from Mabel. And so after one particularly stressful week, he goes to see Mabel, and he says, Mabel, what do you think about all day when you're here alone? She'd been there alone for 25 years. He says, what do you think about all day when you're alone? And he began to write down what she said. <laughs> she says, I think about my Jesus. He's been so, so good to me. You know, I don't deserve a lot of what he's done for me. But he is so kind. And she began to sing this hymn. And I can't sing it to you now. That's why I needed the book. <laughs> but the final line is, he's my friend. And she would just sing this hymn. 25 years. Suffering, pain, loneliness. What could cause, and this is what Craig says in the book, what causes someone to act like that? She has something a lot of us do not have. Dr. Craig says she has power. Power is what she has. She may look the weakest of us all, but she is probably the strongest of us all. She has power. We're going to come back to this story here in a little bit. 
But here's our main idea this morning. Christians are called at different places and times. But every Christian is called to faithful commitment. Christians are called at different places and times, but every Christian is called to faithful commitment. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're on the fifth topic out of about ten, talking about marriage still. Last time we looked at holiness in marriage and in singleness, how they're both gifts from God to be used in pursuit of holiness. This morning we're going to continue to look at Paul's instructions about marriage, but he's going to take this principle and apply it to marriage, but then also apply it to the rest of the Christian life. So we're going to start, I'm going to invite everyone to stand together. I'm going to start reading in verse 10 of chapter 7, and we'll go down through verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10, down through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Pray with me, church. Holy Spirit, the divine inspirer of Scripture, and the one who has the power to illuminate it in our hearts, we ask you to fulfill your ministry to us, reminding them of everything that our Lord Jesus has taught through the entirety of Scripture. We ask this work in the name of Jesus for the glory of the Father and for our good. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So starting off our passage this morning, Paul just finished making the case that singleness ought to be embraced as a gift from God. 
verse 8, he mentions to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them to remain single. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying because singleness is good, if you're married, get divorced so that you can be single because that's a great thing. I wish you were all like I myself am. You can almost see the Christians saying, oh, we're supposed to be single? That's the better thing? Okay, well, I guess I just, we need to get divorced. That's not what he's saying here. That should be obvious, but in case it's not, he gives very clear instructions. The wife should not separate, and the husband should not separate. Now, if you look closely at the passage, you'll notice that there's two different words here. Verse 10, the wife should not separate, but then in verse 11, the husband should not divorce. I think it's easy to read too much into this here. The reason that I say that is because if you look in the next several verses, in verse 12, we see the husband should not divorce. And then in verse 13, the wife should not divorce. So I think that he's intending that to mean essentially the same thing. There are some commentators that suggest possibly it reflects a cultural practice at the time where men would initiate a divorce, but then women sometimes wouldn't. I think that either way you want to look at this, the point is the same. Marriage is intended to be a permanent, lifelong union between a man and a woman. That is the design of marriage. That's the way that God intended it. That's the way that he created it. And that's the way that he wants to see it practiced. But obviously, we live in a sinful world. And this does not always happen. And there are even biblical exceptions that allow for divorce because we are living in a sinful world. Now what happens is that sometimes these allowances keep us from feeling the weight of this prohibition. I saw some studies recently that suggest the earlier children start dating, the more likely they are statistically to get a divorce. And in trying to understand the statistics, uh, they also shoot up with people who live together before marriage. The divorce rate is astronomically higher than those who don't live together before marriage. Why is that? In trying to interpret the statistics, what they believe is that it creates this habit of thinking that I'm going to try something out, and if I don't like it, I can always leave. And we see that translate from the dating relationship into our marriage. Well, if it doesn't work out, it's easy to get a divorce. I can always leave. Sometimes the allowance of a divorce keeps us from feeling the weight of the prohibition against it. It's important for us to feel the weight of this command. To the married, do not separate. Do not divorce. If you do separate, remain unmarried or else be reconciled because whether you acknowledge it or not, that is your spouse. You are one with that person. Why? Because marriage is the lifelong union of a man and a woman. Now let me be clear here. As weighty of an issue as this is, divorce is not the unforgivable sin or the chief of sins. The very fact that we think in these terms sometimes reveals how lightly we regard our own personal holiness. Just the fact that we're thinking in terms of, well, how bad is it? Like we're weighing the options of doing something, we think, okay, but how bad is it really? 
Reminds me of our children or stories that you hear of children. If you do this, this is going to be your punishment. Okay, and they do it anyway. In the moment they've weighed, the punishment is worth me getting to engage in whatever I want to engage in. I don't remember who it is that recommends. There was a parenting book that me and Stacy had read. Uh, maybe Rosemond, or I, I don't remember who it was. But the guy had basically said that the punishment should never match the crime. The punishment should always be way greater than the crime. Always. And so your child does something, okay, well, you're grounded from all TV and electronics for two weeks. What? I, I just did this. I know, yeah, please don't do that again. Well, that's not fair. I know it's not. And it won't be fair next time either. Don't do it again. <laughs> he says, you'd be surprised. That works. <laughs> Drives the point home. We tend to think about our sin in this way, like, well, how bad is it? Well, uh, there's these exceptions. Well, can I make an exception here? And we try to find these loopholes, and we reduce the weight of this command. Our primary consideration, miles above every other consideration, ought to always be, what does God say about this? If God says bad, we should run. If he says good, we should embrace it. Philosophers, in talking about, well, what makes something good? Theistic philosophers agree, even if they're Christian or not. From our worldview perspective, the reason that something is good or not is because God has said it is good. Now, some people have a problem with this. I don't like God declaring what's good. You don't get to choose. We don't. God is the creator of everything. He determines what's good. And in fact, it's that very rebellion against, well, does God really know what's good that started the whole sin situation to begin with? That's why we still struggle with this. Did God really say? Well, he just doesn't want you to be like him. And that doubt sets in, and now forevermore, it seems, we are, we are indebted to this question, has God really said is it really bad or good? That should be the weight behind all of our decisions. And this is what Paul wants to communicate when he says here in the passage, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, in parentheses there, in verse 10. Jesus himself gave this instruction, as did God the Father in the Old Testament. Paul's making it clear this isn't just his idea of holiness. This is the Lord's idea of holiness. When it comes to the permanence of marriage, the church should look markedly different than the rest of the world. Why? It's not because we're any better than the world. We're not. We are not any better than the rest of the world, or else we wouldn't need salvation. We are equally affected by sin as everyone else. So why is it that the church should look different? Because what's different about the church is that we are actively being delivered from our sin through the power of Christ. Even today, I am being more delivered from my sin than I was yesterday. Every day the Lord is chipping away at sin in my life, and that process will never be completed here. It will be completed in eternity with Christ. But the evidence of my salvation is that I crave that continual chipping away. It's when we begin to get relaxed that we should start to be worried. We are being set apart, so we ought to look set apart. Primarily here we see in our marriages. 
This is a power that the world does not have. The gospel message is this. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sin, and he has the power to deliver you from it. When we cling to one or the other of those at the lack of the other, we distort the gospel. It is both an authoritative forgiveness and a powerful deliverance from sin. And our lives ought to reflect that truth. When it does, it's called being a living testimony. When someone says, how is it that I never, ever see you without a smile? I, we don't get to say, I just try to be in a happy mood, and I try to do this, and I try to... We're robbing God from glory when we do that. I don't think we mean to, but we are. Well, I just try to think about this all the time, and I just try to do this. Those things may be true, but ultimately... It's because the Lord has given us something that nothing else can give us. That's called being a living testimony. The world hears this and is convinced more and more of the truth of the gospel. Christians ought not to treat marriage and divorce so lightly because God does not treat it lightly. I've heard Christians who bear the name of Christ sometimes speak words of destruction over other marriages. Things like this, well, they'll never last. It's a lost cause. They'll never make it. They never should have got married. Instead, our words ought to uphold marriage and strengthen marriage like this. Don't give up. Your marriage is worth fighting for. You can't save your marriage, but God can. These are the words that we should be speaking over one another. We ought to pray over our marriages. Pray for a godly spouse. Pray for godliness yourself. Pray for humility. Pray for selflessness. Pray against temptation. Pray for the ability to forgive. Pray for graciousness. We ought to seek help when our marriages are struggling. The integrity of our marriages matter. It matters because God has designed marriage to reflect the message of the gospel. Ultimately, our marriages are tools that the Lord uses to tell the world what it is like to belong to Jesus. In the same way that our relationship with Jesus is permanent and a source of ultimate joy, our marriages are intended to be permanent and a source of joy. Sin can corrupt that purpose, but the power of Christ can overcome the power of sin in our marriages. It's a matter of, do we want it and are we seeking it with our whole being? This will not happen by accident. Good marriages do not exist by accident. They exist on purpose. And some of us who have been married the longest can feel the weight of this, where maybe your marriage started out well, and then a decade in, it starts to wear on you. Your spouse starts to get more and more frustrating. You're starting to get more and more tired. You want to spend less time at home and more time away at the office around someone who gives you positive reinforcement attention or affection. A lot of times this is because we've stopped working. We've taken our good marriages for granted and we stopped working. 
It takes diligence. Ask anyone who's been married a long time. There's been fights and arguments. What sets them apart is not that they have the perfect marriage. It's that they stood their ground and they fought. And you get through the trial and you experience joy. Excuse me, you experience joy and you push on. This is how it ought to be. Verses 12 through 16. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be clean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So now, after addressing those who were married to avoid divorce, Paul allows divorce. What's going on here? Well, first things first, we need to address Paul's statement here in verses 12 and verse 10, referring to the other one. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, he just said the opposite two verses earlier. Some would interpret this phrase to mean that the first instruction is non-negotiable, but the second is negotiable. So the first one is from the Lord. Okay, we need to follow that. But then the second one is just from Paul, not from the Lord. So this one is a little bit looser. We can, kind of, we can kind of give and take on this one. But the problem is that this would essentially mean that anything Paul writes technically can be considered Paul's opinion and up for negotiation. We might start with this one verse, and then we might extend it to the whole teaching on marriage. Then we might extend it to the whole teaching of 1 Corinthians. And then we might extend it to the, most of the teaching of the New Testament. And then we might develop this idea that it's only the red words in the Bible that are God's words, and the rest are negotiable. We cannot go down that slippery slope, or else we become God. Okay? Well then, so how are we to understand this? Well, we know in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. We know that the contents of Scripture in 2 Peter 1.21 were not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul wrote what we have here in the Scriptures, God at the same time was writing the Scriptures for us. This is known as the dual authorship of Scripture. Scripture has two authors at any given point. The human author who penned it, and then the divine author, God, who inspired that human author to write every word that God wanted in this book. That's the dual authorship of Scripture. While each Bible book was written by men, at the same time, each was written by God, who carried that author along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so then, what do we make of this phrase here? Why did Paul even write it, if that's the case? The first instruction in verse 10, not I, but the Lord, was directly from Jesus. We see this 
in Matthew 5, in Matthew 19, and in Mark 10. Great examples. The second instruction was indirectly from Jesus. While Jesus didn't articulate, Jesus did articulate verses 10 and 11. Jesus did not articulate verses 12 through 16 in his earthly ministry. But he inspired Paul to write it, so it is just as much from Jesus as any other instruction. But from Paul's perspective, he doesn't know that he's writing Scripture. Paul doesn't know when he sat down to speak to his scribe to pen this letter, he doesn't know that Scripture is being recorded. God didn't say, okay, Paul, don't mess this up. Scribe, don't mess this up because this is going to be in the Bible forever. He didn't say that. Paul doesn't know that. He's just writing a letter to a church. He says, the Lord's instruction is this. Now, I have something else to say to you. This wasn't directly from the Lord, but I'm telling you as an authoritative apostle that this is how this ought to be done. And it turns out Paul was right. How do we know that? Because we have it enshrined here in Scripture. We can say of any word in this book, Jesus has said. Because Jesus is God. I can flip to the Old Testament and show you the words of Jesus. It's not in red ink, but it's still God's word. So, Paul is clear up front that this is his opinion as an apostle of Jesus. We know that he happens to be right. Well, what's the exception here? Jesus has already told us that divorce is allowable without sin in the case of sexual immorality. Now, we don't have to divorce, and there are many marriages that do not. Someone commits adultery, and the spouse that is offended chooses to forgive as the Lord forgives. And then that marriage pushes on and thrives and is a wonderful testimony. But we are not commanded. The fact of the matter is, we still live in a sinful world. And there are some things that we simply cannot endure. So because of our hardness of hearts, God allows for divorce, but he still hates it. Unfortunately, sometimes it is necessary. Jesus gives us one exception, sexual immorality. Well, what's the exception here? Now we see that divorce is allowable without sin in case of abandonment by an unbeliever. So in the case of two believers, they are not to divorce, they are to work out their issues. However, in the case of a believer and an unbeliever, if the unbeliever desires to remain married, you are not to separate. Why? Because marriage is the lifelong permanent union of a man and a woman. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you can suddenly break God's commands. But if the unbeliever separates, the believer is not enslaved, is not bound. Why is Paul even going into this? The answer lies in the next several verses here in the conversation about the spouse being holy and the children being holy. Apparently there was this view that the unbelieving spouse is unholy because the unbelieving spouse is not a believer. So whenever one spouse becomes a believer, Part of turning from my previous life of sin is to abandon this other spouse who continues to reject the Lord. We see the Corinthians had some weird understandings of holiness. We saw that in chapter 7. It is good for a man 
not to have sexual relations with a woman. In verse 1, Paul is addressing a view they had. It appears to be the same thing here. We see it again later when conversation comes up about eating foods that are sacrificed to idols. In pursuit of holiness, what are we to do or what really doesn't matter? So Paul clearly communicates that as far as holiness is concerned, the unbelieving spouse is made holy so that your continued union with them is not unholy. Otherwise, you would separate, and then your children now are living in that divorced environment, which is unholy. So the children and the spouse are holy in that marriage. Now, some would interpret this passage differently, suggesting that by being married to an unbeliever, that person is made holy, and that if that person, if that person dies, that person is somehow saved because he or she was married to a believing spouse. They are made holy. But taken in context, we see that Paul isn't declaring this at all. That would go against the entire message of the gospel. Otherwise, the gospel would be repent and turn from your sin or marry a Christian. But we know that that's not the gospel. So again, Paul is addressing some strange views that the Corinthians had regarding what it means to be holy. To be holy is to abstain from certain foods or to abstain from certain actions or activities or to abstain from certain people. We'll see that, or we saw that in chapter 5 as well. That may be helpful in itself for various reasons, but concerning personal holiness, these things don't defile someone. Rather, to be holy is to honor our commitments to one another and to God. In marriage is an example of such a commitment. As long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to live with the Christian, the Christian's best demonstration of holiness is to remain in that marriage and treat that spouse as he or she is supposed to be treated, whether submission or sacrifice. Now, that is not an easy thing to do. That is not an easy thing to do. But that is what we are called to do. This ties directly into what Paul says next in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. God's call on our lives is not always the same. Some are called to remain with an unbelieving spouse after being saved. Some are not. Some are called to go into ministry or into mission work. Some are not. Some are called to live under oppressive government control. Some are not. Our calling, regardless of where or when we are called, is to be faithful where God calls us. That is the proper demonstration of holiness. Paul continues in verse 18. When you were called, were you circumcised? Leave it. Were you uncircumcised? Leave it. In verse 21, were you a bond servant? Were you a slave is another translation of that word? Leave it. Were you free? Leave it. Paul's whole point is that despite what our circumstances might be, our calling is to do what is right in the midst of them rather than to just cut all ties creating conflict and dissension. 
If your believing, if your unbelieving spouse tries to separate, let it happen. If your master gives you a chance to be free, take it. But the highest aim in life is not to escape. It's to faithfully submit and endure for the sake of our gospel witness. Paul specifically applies that to marriage here. And then he continues on in verses 18 through 22 to apply that to circumcision and then here to slavery, which we'll talk about briefly in just a moment as I give some application. What I want to do is take these principles this morning that he's specifically applied, kind of pull it out from the text and apply it more broadly for us. Here's the first. I've got two. Number one, we pursue holiness through internal obedience, not external rebellion. Holiness is a matter of internal obedience, not external rebellion. To leave an unbelieving spouse would be rebellion. Marriage is meant to be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. If one or the other refuses to turn to the Lord, that doesn't suddenly just excuse us from our commitments. It's the same with being a slave or a bondservant. In those days, people would offer themselves up to be slaves. We think about slavery in this American context and then kind of apply it to slavery around the world, and that's just not always the case. They would offer themselves up many times to be slaves in order to pay a debt that was owed. It was essentially like a contract. And there were some times where a slave, upon paying the debt, would be allowed to leave his master's house, and the slave might choose to remain a slave. And he could have his ear pierced through to a piece of wood, a door, as a physical sign that I want to remain a part of this house. And he would be a slave there forever. So it was a little different typically than what we think about with slavery. However, many times they were often treated, often treated terribly. The point is that Christians are called to be holy wherever God has called or placed them. And the only reason we can do this is because holiness is an internal matter, not an external matter. I can be holy wherever. Whether I'm being justly treated or unjustly treated, I can be holy because my ultimate identity is found in Christ and not my circumstances. Paul put it very clearly in verse 22. I'm going to paraphrase. He said, I may be a slave, but I'm free in Christ. My spouse may be lost, but I'm found in Christ. So I can endure this situation in the power of Christ. Do you want to be holy? Verse 19 tells us how. Keep God's commandments. Do this by keeping your commitments. That's the first application for us. Number two, God often calls Christians to endure rather than escape. There are two examples that Paul gives here. The first is with marriage. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse who is content to remain married endure. Do not escape. And then he gives it with slavery. If you're indebted to an unjust master, endure. Do not escape. Now, in both of these scenarios, Paul reiterates, if the opportunity to be released presents itself, take it. 
If the opportunity to be released presents itself, take it. But that's not the first call. The first call is to endure. Why? Because it's part of the Christian's testimony to the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus could have escaped, but he didn't. Even up to the point of being hung on the cross, he could have just cried out, release me. And the legions of angels would have swooped down and taken him off. Better yet, he could have just removed himself from the cross and said, I'm done with this. And been gone right there, but he didn't. He remained in an unjust situation, and he endured it for our good. If it wasn't for that, we couldn't be forgiven of sin. He wouldn't have paid our debt. He endured. And he left us an example to follow. There will be times that we can endure an unjust situation for the good of the one who oppresses us. This won't always be the case, but many times it will. Our knee-jerk reaction is to just escape from hardship. But sometimes, how the Christian endures in the midst of a trial will speak more to the power of the gospel than the Christian's readiness to escape from it. And I'll tell you one place that I've seen this, which is why I gave the story at the beginning, is with our senior adults. I've heard this question multiple times. Why is God keeping me here? I'm ready to go home. I can't do anything. I'm in pain. What's the point? I cannot answer this question across the board every time, but I can just give one possible reason from Mabel's story. Testimony. What makes Mabel's testimony so powerful is that she praises Jesus having endured and continuing to endure despite her circumstances. And it's powerful. You may be going through a trial right now. Maybe God is preparing you to go through a trial. This morning, hear the word of the Lord. Endure. If able, escape. But not at the expense of our obedience to God's commands. Fulfill your commitments. Follow God's commands. This is what we've been called to, wherever we're called, as a testimony to the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your unceasing patience, your long-suffering, how you endure our sinfulness even after we are forgiven for your name's sake. Would you teach us to be long-suffering so that we might be faithful to obey your commands and keep our commitments in the midst of our hard circumstances. We want to be a powerful testimony to the gospel. And so we need the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
through the presence of the Holy Spirit within us to equip us and to establish us. Because, Lord, in our own, we are prone to weariness and to wandering. Lord, our flesh is so weak, but in our weakness, we know that your power is made strong because your grace is sufficient for us. So please, Lord, continue to bestow grace upon us. Continue to bestow grace upon our community that many who are still hopelessly trapped in the bondage of sin might see our testimony in our lives, they might hear the truth of the gospel from our lips, and they might turn to you and finally be saved from their sin. Lord, bring all these things about for the sake of your holy name. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.